Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Downstage Podcast, the San Diego Theater Critics Circle Podcast. Hello, I am Alejandra Enciso Dardashti, and my co-host, David Cotton. David Cotton, thank you for that beautiful introduction. You sure you haven't been on the stage, Alejandra, with... I haven't been on this stage, but I've done a lot of TV and radio, so that's where I get these chops. <laughs> Thanks to all of our listeners slash viewers for following us. This is our fourth episode already, fourth of what we hope will be an infinite number of downstage podcast episodes. Today we have a very special guest. Well, we have a special guest joining us today, Melanie Chen Cole, who is a well-known sound designer in San Diego. Melanie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to speak with you guys. Hi, welcome. Happy to have you here. So, Melanie, um, I think a lot of people who are regular theater goers, they may not know exactly what a sound designer does. And I'm not sure that I know 100%, to be honest with you. So, you know, in layperson's terms, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do with your work. Yeah, happy to. Um, I like to think of my work as like in three big categories. So um, the first category that I always think of myself is like the creative side. So thinking about like, you know, if it, especially if it's a straight play or a new play and, you know, even in a musical, you know, there are always going to be like musical transitions, sound effects, and all of these sound things that help create the world. And so my creative side is the one who goes in and does the research, figures out what kind of sound effects we need, um, what kind of music for the right time period we need. And so that's one part of uh, one side of my work. The other side of the work is the engineering side. So figuring out like how many speakers do we need? Where do we want to put the speakers? Do we need microphones? Um, do we want to add effects on microphones? So that's more of a technical side um, of theater where uh, of sound design, where you're kind of like talking with the director, talking with the theater, talk, looking at the script and figuring that side out. And, you know, for musicals, for sure, we need uh, there's also the band that we're working with. Um, sometimes there is, is even live music in Shakespeare and straight plays. Um, so all of that is part of like the technical side of a sound designer's job. And then the last, but the most important category I feel is, um, the, the designer part of the job where basically you are a communicator where you're making sure that everybody is getting the right information at the right time, um, to make sure that all of this can happen. So I, I tend to think of my work in that way. And, you know, some certain plays need more of certain uh, sides of that, where um, maybe there is a play where literally it's a 90 minute play, there's a top of show music, end of show music and two doorbells. And so for me on a show like that, it's really about like communicating with actors or working with the director, talking to stage management. And so my communicator side is the one that I really use most, you know, so things like that, where it kind of toggles between those three, I would say. Alejandra, I'm going to let you ask the next question. So. Yeah, like, well, how does it all play in together for audiences? Because it's, um, how do I formulate this? <laughs> it's, um, it's foreign, right? It's foreign when you're not in, in the business and you're not in the creative process of theater and people just see what they see. You know what I mean? 
How does that, as a, as a creative team player, I hope I'm making sense as I'm making up the words, um, look like from your end when they, you, do you read a script? Um, how do you come up with the ideas in order to make it work sound-wise? Um, in general, also the actors, yes, the doorbell and those uh, types of sounds that are key for what is happening, but for the actors and, and the piece as a whole. Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about my process. Um, and so typically what happens is, um, you know, when you're asked to do a project and, you know, they give you a, a name title of the play and then you take a look at the script. And so I do start off basically reading the script to familiarize myself with the story. So it's like, oh, you, you get the general feel of like what's happening in the story. And then um, I really look to my director. So our, I would like to think our director is like the captain of the ship, which I feel like maybe a lot of people have heard that before, but really um, feeling like the director is guiding all of us to the center point. Because sometimes you don't know the actors that you're working with, or you don't know the um, other creative team members. So, you know, a lot of times there's a set designer, there's a costume designer, there's a lighting designer, and more and more now there's a video and projections designer. And so sometimes you've never worked with those creative team members before. And so the first person we all kind of triangulate and talk to is our director. And so the director might um, come up with a concept. So um, if I may uh, share an example, for example, um, I am working on um, the Mary Wise of Windsor at the Old Globe and we open tonight. Hey. And um, the the concept the director is putting forward, James Vasquez, is it's very 1950s. And so a concept like that is very strong and you really want all of the actors, all of the creative team on board. So basically in my first conversation, he was giving me ideas of how the 1950s was important for this piece. And so for me, I started listening to um, music from the 50s. And so it, it wanted to feel very sitcom-y. So I did my research, watched things like I Love Lucy and just kind of figured figured out the style of that. And then I would go back and read the play again and be like, okay, so there are these transitions that need to happen. This transition feels like it needs to have a lot of energy. This transition feels like, oh, we're kind of crossfading into the next mm -hmm. scene. So then having a more detailed discussion with him and the set designer and the lighting designer to be like, how are we going to achieve that? Um, and so then for me, I put together, um, basically I call them sketches, um, even though they're oral sketches, not, um, visual sketches, but then figuring out like, okay, this is the, this is the piece of music that I'm feeling is right for this transition. So, um, for this particular piece, I didn't compose anything, but sometimes if I am working as a composer, um, the director might be like, okay, this is a very melancholy transition, but we need it to feel like we're running forward. And so for, for me, then instead of, um, looking for a piece that fits that I would create a piece that would fit mm -hmm. that um, and then I would send those to the director then he would work with them in the rehearsal and so they would try things in the rehearsal and they'd be like oh hey Melanie maybe like this is still too sad can we have something more uplifting or he would say oh this is a perfect piece of music but it's only 20 seconds and we need to do 40 seconds of that so during the rehearsals um, I, I like it when the actors are getting to hear what I've created so they can also respond to it. And I, what I find with that is that um, me also watching rehearsals, I get to get an idea of what the actors are doing and that sparks my creativity. And then in turn, it also sparks their creativity when they hear what I'm trying to do. And then, um, so that's kind of the whole rehearsal process. Then we have something called uh, Tech Week, 
where uh, we're putting all of the different elements together. So that's when we are, you know, in the theater for 12 hours mm -hmm. together um, and the lighting and the costumes and the sets and the sound and the video, everything is coming together in that moment. But before we have that, um, we have something specifically for sound is called quiet time, hmm. where basically um, usually it's in the middle of the day when the theater is completely empty. And so it is quiet in there. And so what I do is I start working with the speakers that are in the sound system. So um, earlier I had said that like I determine how many speakers we want and like where we want to place them. And so this quiet time is for me to make sure that all of those pieces are working together. Um, so it's almost like a, a, a long day of sound check before we get all the other collaborators in. And so I think for lighting designer, they have something called focus where they do the same thing with lights is they test out all the lights, they point all the lights before we all get into the same room. So um, there's always that like technical prep before we get the actors. And then during tech rehearsals, that's when we try the cues in the space. So um, that's when um, I start getting very nitpicky with the notes. So it's like that one transition that we made from 20 seconds to 40 seconds, maybe now that we see it in context, really 35 is what we wanted. So I would make that change um, during this tech week. And then we have something called previews where we invite um, audiences to come and watch before we have an official opening. And during that time, we really are working to see like everything that we've built, if anything is making, if everything is making sense. And so, um, you know, especially with a comedy, um, really when the audience interacts with the piece, it definitely um, helps us. And we do work in the afternoons to make changes. Um, so specifically for Merry Wives, because it is a comedy, um, there are moments where we're like, you know, we thought this joke would land, but it doesn't. So how can we adjust um, our tech to kind of like help uh, propel that? Or like, oh, the scene feels a little bit long. So what's the underscore that we need to add to make it feel less uh, tedious, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And then um, after previous week, we have opening day. And um, I always try to remind uh, young designers that I uh, work with that like opening day is basically the day we release our child into the <laughs> world. So now it belongs to the actors and stage managers and crew. And, you know, actually we are not allowed to change anything. And so, you know, as artists, we always are like second guessing ourselves. And so we're always like, oh, I wish wish I had one more chance to like listen to that. But um, what I really love about opening day is that it's our deadline day. And you know, whatever you could have done, or you should have done, you there's it, it's now in the world. So there's nothing to be done. And so um, you can just enjoy the piece as you've created. Um, and then we run the show. And as designers, you're typically not there for that. Because um, in the point of tech, you've trained the crew and the running staff to really um, keep the show going and they're able to like troubleshoot and upkeep without you. Wow. So Melanie, yeah. that's amazing. Out of here. Yeah. Um, before, we, before we let you go, um, you Join. do so many things, wear so many hats here. What would you tell young theater artists who are interested in doing what you're doing? What advice would you give them? I guess I would say that um, the, the theater is really hard work. And I think that all of us who are in the theater, we, we love it. And so um, what I have found in my career is that um, everyone who is in it loves their job. And so we're always willing to be there to mentor, uh, give advice if there's anything specific that you need help with, or at least point you in the right direction. And so I would say, like, don't be afraid to... Um, 
ask and um, ask questions, ask for what you need, ask for um, what you're missing. And, you know, I, I feel like um, in my early stages, I was always a little bit afraid and not confident. But um, over the years, I have found that there are so many lovely people in this community willing to um, bring people up and support them. And so don't be afraid is what I would say. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. After all these years, right, David, like working in theater, she painted the clearest picture. <laughs> Thank you for that. Cause it was great. Yeah, it was, it made course. so much sense. So, so yeah, I'm have yeah, way much more respect now for sound designers. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Melanie and, and, us and uh, break a leg with Mary wives. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. Hopefully we'll have you on again sometime. I hope so. Happy to come on anytime. Yes. All right. We'll be back after a brief break. But David, did you know that this commercial break is available for sponsorship? I did not know that. Well, there you go. So if any of our listeners would like to feature their company and or products, they can send us an email at info at sdcriticcircle.org with the subject line advertising in downstage. And we'll take it from there. Welcome back. This is the Downstage Podcast. And I'm very happy to have had Melanie on and explain the wonders of being a sound designer. And now we're going to have more wonders because we have Cassiopeia. I'm always like, oh, Cassiopeia <laughs> Guthrie, a fellow San Diego Theater Critics Circle member. Welcome, Cassiopeia. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing so well. Thank you. How are you? We're good. We're like Great. everywhere, literally. <laughs> good to see We're you. By the way, welcome to uh, the Critic Circle. I know you're a new, relatively new member, and we're really excited to have you as uh, part of our uh, coalition. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. It's been a really great natural progression, I think, of my work in the theater community. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Cassiopeia? Uh, you know, as briefly as possible, because you have a pretty extensive theater background. I do. So I actually, I grew up in a theater family. My mom um, actually got her bachelor's degree in theater, technical theater. And so I grew up singing musicals and obviously participated in theater and in, in school when I was growing up. And then... Um, and then as an adult, my very first teaching job, I'm actually a, a credentialed teacher. So my very first teaching job included advising the drama club on campus. Oh, wow. And then subsequently, I actually, I was on the board for a nonprofit theater for 12 years where I held multiple roles, including general manager, brand director, president. I was a producer. I was a costumer. I was a set designer and builder, and I was a performer myself. So um, when you kind of combine that with my background in journalism, it just really felt like a, a wonderful transition to be able to move into using both of those skills simultaneously. Wow. Now I understand even more. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, if you all haven't read, um, you know, Cassiopeia's uh, pieces, they're all like this vortex of wonder <laughs> when you go and you read and it's like detailed, but at the same time, it has a lot of depth and it's, it's really cool. So now I really, 
you gave me a little glimpse into your brain a little bit, so I understand even more now. This is this has been a great episode of <laughs> understanding so stuff. Andra, thank you, thank you so <laughs> much. Yeah, I really reading your reviews, I want to echo that, uh, Cassiopeia. Reading your reviews, you get a real insider's uh, look at the production, which you don't get from every critical piece, and. As, as someone who loves theater like I do, I, I actually learn a lot from your reviews. And I see things that you know maybe I didn't recognize because I haven't worn all the hats that you have. Um, what is your, what are your, do you have a philosophy about criticism? So I do have a philosophy about criticism, but, um, but really I think it centers more on my philosophy of education and theater as a whole, which is I feel that we have a responsibility to, to navigate these spaces as a vehicle with which we can connect with other people. Um, and there's a lot of different components that go into theater. So there's the artistic components, there are rhetorical components. It is a space where uh, we are developing a community in that moment that has shared experiences with an opportunity to move forward with action beyond that room. And so one of the things that I really think that um, that resonated with me was a quote that I read once that talked about how criticism, theater criticism specifically, um, can be a way to appreciatively criticize and critically appreciate. And I think that that particular um, ideation of theater criticism as a way for us to to look at things almost through a rhetorical perspective where can we take this how is this impacting the world in which we live and how can we expand the people who are going to be reached by this medium I think all those different components can go into um, how I choose to write my pieces wow um you said something right now about you know making community the rhetorical and how we're all there sharing a space. David and I, in the previous episode, talked about theater etiquette. And we talked mm-hmm. about, you know, things that happen in the theater that it's like, we don't appreciate, right? Like kicking the seats, you know, when they block you, wearing hats, uh, things like that. And I got, which I love now that our listeners come up and say, hey, I listened to what you said and I don't agree. <laughs> or, hey, you know. And, they, and I got a comment that said, theater etiquette, really? And I'm like, yes, really. <laughs> so can you um, tell me, after this context that, that you know, you explained to us, what does theater etiquette mean to you? In that you sense. Know, it's, I think it's a really interesting question because I believe that theater as an art form has oftentimes excluded many marginalized audiences. And so I'm very interested in seeing theater become a more inclusive space. Um, And I want to see that happen on all of the different sides. So I want to see that happen in our creative and our technical spaces, but I also want to see that happen in our audiences. And I think that as we expand theater opportunity in order to make it more accessible and more inclusive, we are going to just uh, by nature of building understanding and audiences see shifts in some of those elements. And I think that we have a responsibility to help um, people to understand that theater is a live medium, that there are performers and there are, you know, stage managers and there are technical booth workers who are in the moment trying to account for the things that are happening in that space. And also, I think that it's really important to understand that 
uh, people are going to bring their whole and complete selves into our theaters and that not all of our experiences individually as we're coming into that space are going to coincide with that same idea of what etiquette means. And so, um, you know, there are some communities that are are more rousing in the way that they interact with live performers in general. There are others that are more reserved. And so I don't think that there is a right or a wrong way to approach a live performance. Um, but I think that as a community, we have an opportunity to develop an understanding of what that can look like. I think that if we were to go into, for example, um, Six the Musical just came through San Diego. If people were to go into Six the Musical or Tina, the Tina Turner musical mm -hmm. with a more traditional approach to what they think theater is supposed to look like, they might feel themselves out of place in a very loud and enthusiastic audience. And so I think that it is a sort of a, a trajectory and it's also a spectrum and things are going to be um, probably dependent in many ways on the context. And, um, and I also think that it's an opportunity for us to, to figure out how to create these inclusive spaces and how to make sure that everyone does feel included. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I understand that. And I understand that too with the reactions. I remember um, I was working on a play about mariachi, you know, maybe Mexican and stuff. And I saw it and it was great. But then I took my grandma. And my <laughs> grandma was like, you know, talking back to the actors. and But in a really happy way. And we had mm -hmm. a couple that was just like dismissing that. And I was so upset, you know, because I was like, she's really enjoying it. Like, you don't understand, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I get that. For me, it's just like a consideration aspect. And now with Tina, I had four women on their phone the whole almost three hours of the show, like, like lit up screen, you know, talking. And I was like, can you please leave? <laughs> right? Like, you don't care about this show. So for me, it's more about a consideration aspect. Yeah, and it the impacted community your situation. enjoyment. Your enjoyment of that show was yeah. impacted. And so I yes. think that these are all things that, that need to be kind of part of the equation and part of the conversation. Um, but generally speaking, I would prioritize inclusivity and accessibility to new audiences over etiquette of the past. <laughs> mm -hmm. True. Agreed. What's that, David? Is your mic off, David? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, having been called a scold and, <laughs> and somebody who wanted to, quote, turn theater into Wimbledon. <laughs> oh, I love That's that. That's a very, I don't want, very specific. I don't want to revisit Super specific. Again. I, well, I'm sure we will revisit it, but I, I would like to pivot to something uh, else Cassiopeia that uh, Alejandra and I've been talking about, and that is you know, the relative cost of theater. You know, as we know, theater is in a crisis period. I don't think that's mm -hmm. a and, um and is trying to not only uh, win new theater goers, but you know, its very survival may be at stake. And and she and I were talking about the fact that you know, given the cost of everything that we spend money on, entertainment and otherwise. Theater really isn't unreasonably priced as a rule. What would your reaction be to that? Uh, you know, it's an interesting question just because, like I said, theater has, has traditionally been a space that has served specific audiences. And so I think the audiences that, that 
often attend theater are audiences that have access to the financial flexibility to be able to attend. And so for those people, I think that the pricing is is very reasonable and the pricing is well within you know their area of expectation. I will say that prices on theater tickets range significantly um, in any community, but San Diego is a microcosm of that. And so you can really see that there are some tickets that are much more accessible price-wise and then other tickets that are much less accessible price-wise. Um, generally, I think that we have, um, we have theaters that intend to create art that is available and accessible to the people who want to come and see it. Um, I also believe that there are ways that we can integrate different pay structures in order to make it more accessible to people who have not had the opportunity to do that. Um, I think one of those ways, for example, is is a pay what you can model, which doesn't necessarily have to include every single production, but can include some of those shows, which does allow people to um, to access theater who it might not be available to usually. Um, but I also think that if you're going to have a model like that, it has to be very visible. It has to be something that you are marketing. It has to be something that you are clear about how you make it available to the community. There has to be outreach that's included. And, um, and I think that that is, uh, you know, one of many ways, but it is a way to build new audiences, um, without, you know, having this fear of devaluating the product that's on stage. Um, but I will say that my experience with attending shows, um, over the last year has ranged very, very greatly in terms of how many people are in the audience. I've gone to shows where there is a very low percentage of people in the audience for the number of seats that are available. And then in recent weeks, I've gone to many, many shows that are completely sold out. So, um, so I don't know that that answers your question specifically. Well, you, know, you, you read these many, many, unfortunately, uh, treatises about why theater is in a crisis mode. Very few yeah. of them, if any, that I've read mention cost as one of the reasons that people aren't going to the theater. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that there's enough research that has been done on why people are not attending the theater, though. Um, so and I can speak again as somebody who was the president of a 501c3 theater during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and through the pandemic, I know that that the organization that I was running uh, we operate two different theaters. We operate a, a black box theater that seats about 80 guests. It's like a 34-foot stage. And then also an amphitheater that seats upwards of 800 guests that has um, a 40-foot stage with a 36-foot apron. So very, very large space. And I know that that one of the things that we were really struggling with was this inability to bring in any revenue whatsoever from the, the cost of tickets, but also people's inability to donate during the other financial challenges that they were navigating through. Um, what I will say is that theaters really depend on having sponsors, having um, donors, having subscribers, having volunteers. And without all of those things, a lot of the, the infrastructure begins to collapse. And so there were a lot of expenses that did not go away during COVID. And then even when we came back, even once we were all back in person, we still had, you know, 40, 50% of our audiences on a good day. And so I, I think that there are probably components that are 
are well outside of cost. Things like the fact that streaming media has been more accessible through the pandemic. And that's how people began to really enjoy how to consume their content. Um, mm-hmm. Things like people had gotten involved in, in other interests and no longer had that time reserved or earmarked in their schedule. I'm sure there's a variety of other reasons, but I don't know that that data has been collected or disaggregated. Oh, I love it. Um, come work with me, Cassio. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's so interesting. And yes, I understand. And I, again, it, we addressed um, something similar uh, in the past episodes. And I also think it's a domino effect of everything that you've been saying too, like the inclu- inclusion aspect, how it's catered to a certain type of, of audiences. I don't agree with the cost, um, uh, the, 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 this premise of, oh, theater is expensive. That's why I don't go, you know? No, there's, there's a lot of interest, uh, behind it. And we talked about it, uh, David, now with Taylor Swift, you know, Bad Bunny, there, you see all types of people from all backgrounds mm-hmm. in those concerts. And those concerts are, I mean, I don't have, you know, the means to go to any of those concerts. Right. But it's also a thing about, uh, researching, also, if you are interested, you're going to make that show that you want to go to. Scalpers, that's another thing. And I'm so mad at that situation. And there's like that, that there's no law that, you know, detains them from doing these terrible things. Right. And it's getting to San Diego theater, too. Um, but, yeah, the pay what you can. Moxie Theater also has one where, like, you know, if you send them an email and you're like, I really want to see this show and I don't have the means to, they'll welcome you in. Things like that, that I think that, yes, more theaters should do, but also as audiences, I think there's a co-responsibility where we, we, we give and take, we give and take, right? So um, I agree with everything that you're saying, but I also think that as um, theater goers, as spectators, we also have this responsibility, you know, of researching and doing that, that part as well. Sure. Which also then, comes with knowledge. I understand that. Right. Well, and then to add a third dimension, right? Also, the the decision makers in our theaters, the people who are making yeah. the decisions about what type of programming to be to put on, are 100%. are going to make decisions that are either going to bring people in or not going to bring people in, depending yep. on what various groups of interests are. And so, um, yeah, I think that there are so many different. Um, aspects that play into that. Um, I did want to mention because you were talking about some of the programs that are available to different theaters that a lot of our theaters do have educational programs. And so folks who are really trying to learn more about um, about theater or folks who run theater education programs are oftentimes able to bring students um, for a reduced rate or, or sometimes those might be funded by grants or other means. And so it is definitely worth reaching out to a theater if there's something that you see that is interesting and you have students with you. Um, it is a really great way to introduce folks to the art medium. Yeah, that's great that you bring that up. That's true. Mm-hmm. We'll have to do another episode sometime. And Cassiopeia, maybe you can join us for this. Discussing, you know, the you mentioned the theater, people who run the theaters. The, the whole idea of curating a season and building yeah. in both, both shows that they know will sell and then shows that they really want to do, like new works, and, and how, what a balancing act that is for theaters. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, Cassiope, yeah, yeah that's gonna, super interesting. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being with us today and for being part yeah, of our Thank you group. so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me to talk today, and it's always a pleasure to see you, you both. <laughs> Yeah, the same. I miss your face. So thank God that I just saw you at least through the screen today and the airwaves. 
Yes. Well, that brings us to the close of yet another episode of Downstage. Thanks, as always, for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Downstage is a production of the San Diego Theater Critics Circle. Co-hosts David Cotton and Alejandra Enciso Dardashian.